Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about some ideas for rebuilding our economy and our society in a way that will help everyone recover from the pandemic and make us more ready for the next emergency we face. Clips today are from The Ezra Klein Show, Pitchfork Economics, The Majority Report, Deconstructed, Democracy Now!, and The Takeaway. One of the things that I think coronavirus has done, although I'm not sure it's always stated this way, is give a lot of people with more wealth and resources an idea of what it is like to be a working parent without wealth and resources, what it's like to try to juggle not having childcare for your kids, but having a job, not having a reliable way to make sure those two things are separated, not have reliable care because you can't always get it, not be able to lean on family who maybe you already had. And I wonder if there's not some kind of solidarity that could come out of this, because I think a lot of people are seeing that when you don't have the ability to make sure your children are cared for, your ability to work, your ability to move ahead at work, your ability to be productive, all those things that we end up patting ourselves on the back for doing as we, you know, if we're lucky enough to be moving up in the economy, that really depends on childcare. And the fact that so many people do not have the capacity to rely on that, that's happened to almost everybody during the pandemic. But it often strikes me that what's happening to so many during the pandemic is simply what normal life is like for a lot of people outside the pandemic. Unfortunately, this pandemic has become, in many respects, like you uh, summarized, an equalizer. And I think coming out of this, I think there'll be a, a greater sensitivity to what low-income families have to deal with each and every day. And I think that this gives us an opportunity to form broader political coalitions. Talk about suburban white housewives or suburban white mothers or single moms who haven't had to deal with this because they've had access to opportunity and good-paying jobs. Well, now, you know, we need to work with them to make sure they understand this is how it is (laughs) for us all of the time. And I think that sensitivity is there. But also added to that, though, so many kids who are not in school for the right reasons don't have access to broadband. And a lot of people who uh, had jobs, if they did not lose their jobs, they've got access to broadband and can telecommute. And so a lot of people are beginning to see the disparities as it relates to access to technology with low-income children, because there is no way if you don't have access to broadband, then you can do online classes. And there is no way if you don't have uh, access to broadband that you can keep a job that requires this. And, and so, yeah, I think it's, it gives us, unfortunately, it's taken so much death and pain to help people understand the condition of others. And I think it does present an opportunity to build a stronger coalition around eliminating childhood poverty. And should this also be a reminder in a way that investing in kids is also investing in adults and taking care of children is also taking care of adults? I think that's a part of this conversation that often gets lost. Sure, because you invest in kids, uh, you're you're helping parents uh, make sure that they're able to go to work without a lot of worry. (laughs) They're able to come home and their children uh, have been in school and they've learned something and they, yes, will need help with their homework, but it won't be as difficult because they've had a, a good day at school. And you don't have to worry about your child being safe. You don't have to, again, going back to gun violence. 
making sure that guns are taken off the streets. You don't have to worry about kids being shot at school if we had better gun control laws. And so, yeah, taking care of children relieves a lot of the stress and strain on parents. Again, referring to my personal experience, it was difficult as can be trying to figure out how I could study, go to classes. I was on work study, active as a community worker with the Black Panther Party, and uh, take care of my children, and all of that going on at one time. And had I had money, I could have had more childcare where it would have relieved me from some of the pressure. But we may do, <laughs> and, and they're phenomenal young men. But so many, especially so many single moms, don't have that network and that support system in place to be able to juggle. And it, it creates more stress and more trauma, really, for the family. So, Jessen, we continue to learn from Kate Bond that it is a thorny and expensive problem. But as I reflect on it, uh, I think the best research shows that there are at least three drivers of the cost of childcare. Of course, the first cost is people because childcare is not a, really a scalable business in the sense that you can't make it more efficient like a technology company necessarily. And the truth is that we want to pay those folks more money, not less. So that's going to account for a lot of the cost. The second cost is real estate, particularly in cities where real estate is very, very expensive. That drives cost a lot too. And finally, there's some really interesting problems and opportunities around regulation, aren't there? Yeah, that's right. And that tension between wanting to have high quality yes. and a high standard for what we expect in our childcare facilities, but at the same time, not making them so onerous that you simply can't open a facility in a center city, say, because of the open space requirements or the outdoor requirements. So there's that managing that tension as well. Right. And Jessen, you mentioned that one of the things, which is in our state, there's an open space requirement for child care centers, which may, basically means they need an outdoor play area, which in turn means that all of the space in the giant fancy building where we have our offices is excluded from being possibly child care space, which is nuts. <laughs> right, right. But it really lays bare just what a massively... It just that th it is an expensive proposition. There's no way of getting around that yeah. because A, we want to pay people well who provide this work and B, we want to make sure that kids are really well taken care of. And we need to really vastly expand our notion of what our societal responsibility is towards this. This is something that we need to be investing in collectively. And in our exploration, our own internal exploration, I think one of the things that really struck us is that there's this arbitrary age cutoff that we come to where we need to start public investments and it's age five. And that is this weird historical artifact that's not really based on science. We know that 
infants are our earliest learners. Kids and infants start learning right away. And so it is strange that so much of our public investment is withheld until kids are five, when yeah. they've already had a lot of exposure to learning environments, both good and bad. And so we really need to change our ideas around when and to what extent we're investing in publicly funded childcare. And the good news is Kate talked a lot about that. There's some great policy proposals. Vice President Biden issued one. Patty Murray has the Child Care is Essential Act. There's a growing interest and focus on this, and we need to really get in front of it, given the crisis that families are facing in this pandemic and what's going to be happening afterwards, too. Yeah. And I, I think that there are a couple of policy principles that seem really important and robust to me. The first is that if we're going to tax folks for childcare, it should be the businesses that rely on the workers that have the children, right? Like you can't, it's this ridiculous thing of free riding where you expect your workers to come to work on time and to be productive and you expect them to have children so that there'll be people to buy your products, but nobody has accounted for the fact that somebody has to take care of the kids when the parents are at work. And I think, you know, a small payroll tax or a small business and operations tax would go a long ways nationally to closing the gap. The second is the real estate problem, which I think is a super big contributor to cost and availability. And if it was me, I would require all commercial landlords to put aside either some money or some space for childcare. You could even take it a step further and say that childcare facilities are essential public facilities, right? The way we do with transportation facilities or water infrastructure and just say- Or schools. When we are, or schools, right? When we're building and planning communities, we are going to deliberately plan and fund through private or public mechanisms, ample facilities for childcare. And that, again, it's not, you don't get at the people issue and how we're paying yeah. and compensating people. You need to do that piece too. But just looking at it as an infrastructure issue, I think, is solving part of the problem. So right. I, I really like that. Yep. We need to find a way to get our childcare system through this crisis, but then we need to put some real energy into reimagining it. And I guess for me, the punchline is, of course, we can afford to do it. Of course, we can have a decent childcare system in this country. We're just going to have to rearrange the way in which we value things in a more reasonable way. Your plan, it's very straightforward. And we should also say, in this era of COVID, there is data coming out of COVID, the first CARES Act that went out, that in many respects, sort of like gives you all the evidence you need that your prescription is the right one. Let yeah. Talk about this. Well, my prescription comes from a couple of places uh, in my head and heart, forgive me. One is we can't keep treating poor people like they, poor parents, like they can't take care of their kids. If the big reason we don't want to give cash is that we think they're going to waste the money on themselves. The evidence is that they don't. It's not only evidence in the U.S. Almost all rich democracies give a cash allowance of some kind or other. Canada, we do, in my uh, think tank, which is part of the, supported by Bernard L. Schwartz, we presented the Canadian proposal, 
and talked about how much it would help America if we adopted the Canadian cash proposal. So my attitude was, my attitude is simple. Kids need, poor kids need a lot of things, but mostly they need money. And I'm not just, this is not just wishful thinking. One of the things discovered by academics over the last 20 years is the value of money itself. They're in constant, I talk about this, I think I have a chapter in the book that talks about how money matters. The one colorful example is an Indian tribe that uh, developed a very successful casino and they gave $5,000 to each family that had a child. The this evidence is, this is, is a Duke study from a, a Cherokee tribe in North Carolina. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And they discovered their educational attainment increased. The crime rate decreased. That is compared to their peers in similar tribes and in similar economic circumstances. But that was just, but that was but one example of how cash can matter. So my view is let's give them cash three or four thousand dollars per child a year maybe five thousand dollars some nations go higher than that and let the parents figure out how to use that cash best buying them a warm coat having electricity in the winter time buying them books computers possibly at least an internet service and let's treat parents in a way, in a respectful way, and I think they'll act in a respectful way if we do that. Well, we know from the COVID payments that were uh, sent out at the beginning of the crisis, back when um, there was uh, at least some attempt to provide relief for Americans, we know that the cash payments ended up reducing the poverty rate. I mean, it, it sounds uh, quite obvious, but all the data was there. And the other thing is we also know sort of ideologically, we keep hearing that, you know, you want to localize, you know, you want to give school boards uh, the right to expend their own cash. Well, this is that principle, but on a very meaningful level, and that is trust parents of children to figure it out. Of course, on the margins of every single endeavor that humans undertake. I think there's people who don't do the right thing or they waste it or whatever it is. But the bulk uh, is important. Now, you're, what you're proposing is also universal, right? I mean, so universal and taxable. So that if you make higher incomes, it'll be taxed away. The universality is a little bit like Social Security is universal. You want to have everybody you want to have broad public support for this kind of thing. And but let me also say that giving them cash, you raised a good point, Sam. Giving them cash got poverty down. But now we know getting poverty down gives these kids a chance in school to get good jobs, to be healthy, to be emotionally stable, on and on, and not to have brain damage. Let me just lastly just add this thing about the universality. People are always talking about means testing, whatnot. We have a way of means testing. That is very efficient. This also applies to Social Security for that matter, which is you give everyone a universal amount and you claw it back on the back end with taxes because we already have an apparatus to determine, you know, taxes. We already have a tax rate. We don't need to create another bureaucracy to see and to force people to jump through hoops to get it in the first place. We could just do it on the back end through taxes. It's the most efficient way. And it also retains support for this program. So people aren't thinking that other people are getting benefits that they're not getting. Of course, I'd love to raise the progressive tax rate as well. So. You and I both. We can do that as well after we get uh, after we do the heavy lifting of getting those payments out.
what you wrote in your piece is that the signal is that the Biden administration will be taking its clues from 2008 and reacting in a similar way. Yeah, that seems to yeah, that's fair enough. That seems to be the case. That uh, that what one sees in the is the dominant tendency is that they believe that what they did in 2008, well, 2009, 2010 worked. Uh, that they can uh, pull the economy out through a short-term program of stimulus and then shift to retrenchment of one kind or another, you know, in the following years. And I think it's fair to say that that is a, uh, a projection of a situation that was very different than from what we have now. It doesn't have the complication of the uh, of, of the public health issue, and it didn't have the kind of uh, it did have a certain degree of uncertainty, but the uncertainty over what was going to happen next was resolved in a fairly short period of time. And that's not necessarily going to be the case now. And so tell us what's different about how the Obama administration reacted to 2008 and why just extending unemployment benefits, giving money to small businesses, the Federal Reserve, pouring money into the economy why won't that work in the long term? Uh, well, I think there are two or three basic problems here. Let's call it three basic problems that are really signatures of this situation. The first is that the major industries in which the United States is competitive, uh, which depend upon world markets, are seeing their markets basically dry up. Uh, and that's true for, uh, if you think about aerospace, uh, civilian aircraft industry, major industry, major employer, you know, it depends upon world demand for aircraft. And since nobody's flying, there is no demand for new aircraft. One can go down the list of the, oh, the oil industry, you may not like it, but it, it fueled the recovery in the last 12 years. And uh, it now operates in the United States at, in a situation where the price that they get is half the cost of extraction. It's not going to go on like that indefinitely. So all these elements that make up the advanced sectors of the economy are uh, in in limbo at the moment, and they're not likely. There's nothing much you can do just by pouring money into the firms. You can keep the firms alive, but you can't make their markets function. You can't make it profitable for them to produce what they're accustomed to producing. So that whole sector needs to be reorganized and mobilized to do things that we actually need doing, like dealing with climate change, for example, or reconstructing our living environments so that we can handle the public health emergencies that are obviously hit us now and may well hit us again in the future. Those kinds of things require a reorganization and mobilization of the most advanced sector. That's not where most of the jobs are. Most of the jobs are in services. The problem in services, small and medium businesses, is that uh, I'm in a service sector, you're in a service sector, your job depends upon my willingness to buy your your the service you're providing, uh, and your job depends upon my having an income, and therefore me having a job. And the service sector, of course, is in this enormous retrenchment. So one has to think about how to structure that sector so that at least a significant part of it can keep going. And the third thing is that, uh, yes, all these incomes have become, the economists call this a contingent. They've all become uncertain and uh, people are becoming anxious over whether they have incomes and their incomes in many cases are being cut off. The unemployment insurance that they got in April and ran out in June and July, but their debts haven't, have, are not contingent. Their debts continue to pile up. So the rent bill is still there. The mortgage bill is still there. The utility bill is still there. And all of these things uh, can put them under enormous pressure and end up having putting them out of a house, a place to live, as soon as, they, as, the, as the moratorium on foreclosures and evictions is lifted. So one has to think about how to deal with that. And that's a major reset because there's no reason why people who are 
who are put out of work by a public health emergency should be put out of their homes because they, they couldn't maintain incomes while their debts continued to pile up. That's a fundamental injustice. As that problem develops, for the moment, if it's held in abeyance, it's going to have to be dealt with because it should meet an enormous amount of, of popular resistance to force those kinds of contracts to be fully enforced. And that means working it out because you don't have a whole lot of mom and pop landlords who are, you know, own a few units and their incomes depend upon uh, being able to get the, the rental payments that they have. So you, one has to work out a general resetting of the situation that can hold people more or less harmless in their situations. Simply pumping money into the economy can hold things up for a period of time, but it's not going to produce the recovery, in my view. So the recommendations that you make sound a lot like the New Deal to me. I mean, a jobs guarantee. Yeah, they do to um, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so just to go over them, I mean, you have the jobs guarantee, you have rebuilding domestic manufacturing, basically inventing a new economy to deal with climate change and putting people to work there. Do you think that we're prepared to make such a large shift in the economy? Well, I think the American people are prepared to do it, sure. I think they're anxious for uh, the kind of leadership that would give them the opportunity to show what they can do. And that was true in 1933 as well. People were ready for the leadership when Roosevelt provided it. Could you get it done in the present political environment? Well, uh, you know, that depends upon what the people decide to do in November and whether the elected leadership gets the message. And that's obviously going to be, under any circumstances, a, a, a pretty tough uh, road to hoe. But the New Deal is the right example. The New Deal showed that it is possible to reconstruct the economy. And it wasn't that Roosevelt simply revived the pre-existing economy of the 1920s or the early 1930s. No, they set out to change fundamentally the nature of American agriculture, to provide economic development through the American South and electricity that had never been there before, and to rebuild the entire what we now call infrastructure of the country, the, the roads, the, uh, the bridges, the airfields, the schools, the courthouses, university buildings, it's all over the country, the legacy of the New Deal. And this was imagined at the time. And that strikes me as fundamentally what the mindset we need to have in dealing with the aftermath of this, because we're not going to get back. Whatever one thinks about the economy that existed, and that developed over the last 40 years and became really, it, it took a mature form in the last dozen years, we're not going to get it back. It's not coming back in that form. We're going to have to find new things for millions of people who've been working in offices who find themselves no longer needed. There are millions of people who have been working in services that are not going to be revived very quickly to do. And uh, well, there are lots of things to do. There's no shortage. There's never a shortage of work to be done, but we have to organize people to be able to do it and bring to bear the talents of the advanced sectors and their capacity to get them off of doing things which people are not going to be needing and not going to be demanding and, and into doing things that are actually going to that future generations are going to say, yes, that was a good idea. As an independent production that depends on the direct financial support of the audience, Best of Left is as vulnerable as everyone else in this time of economic uncertainty. When people can't go to work or get laid off, non-essential expenses are the first to go. We perfectly understand that. So if you can support the show directly on Patreon, that would be amazing and fantastic, and we thank you for that. But there is also a way you can support the show without it costing you any money. So if you're doing any shopping from the big box store in the sky, you can use our affiliate 
affiliate link and we'll get a cut of the price from everything you purchase. Our affiliate links for the US, UK, and Canadian stores are in the show notes on our website and on the device you're using to listen right now. If you use our link and you're taken to either the homepage or our Alexa skill page, then you have done it right. There's nothing additional you need to do, and we will benefit from the shopping you do after that. If you take just a moment to bookmark our link to your country's store on your browser, or even delete the mobile app on your phone and add that link as a button in its place, you can enormously help us get through this health and economic crisis just by doing your regular online shopping. Thanks so much for your support. It's time once again to play America's favorite political game show. Check your blind spot. That's right. It's Check Your Blind Spot, powered by Ground News, the first ever news comparison platform that provides readers with objective data about the underlying political biases in all published news stories. The Ground News app features the Blind Spot, which highlights news stories that just aren't being covered by one end of the political spectrum or the other. So I use the Blind Spot to quiz contestants on theirs. With us today is our, well, previously reigning champion, uh, looking to redeem herself, Amanda from Boston. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. And now I'm going to tell you about news stories, and you're going to tell me which side of the political spectrum is blind to them. Are you ready? I'm ready. And we're going to skip right past all the Hunter Biden stories and take (laughs) it as granted that the right is having a field day and the left is either ignoring or debunking. All right, let's dive in and get ready for round one. In whose political blind spot is this story? Biden says America is an idea that was, quote, never lived up to. A little bit more on that. During an interview on Brene Brown's podcast, talking about the legacy of slavery and the Black Lives Matter movement, Biden said, America was an idea, an idea. We hold these truths to be self-evident. We never lived up to it, but we never walked away from it before. And I just think we have to be more honest, let our kids know as we raise them what actually did happen. Acknowledge our mistakes so we don't repeat them. Hmm. Well, I'm going to go ahead and say it's in the right blind spot. (laughs) Boo. (laughs) I'm sorry to say no, it is not in the right blind spot because... Once again, of course, this is reasonable, but it goes strongly against what the right believes. And so, of course, the right is responding by clarifying that actually, no, America is fantastic, everything about it is great, and it has, in fact, lived up to its ideals. The best articles on the right about this are just the listicles of tweets, where people rain down hatred on Joe Biden for suggesting that America is less than perfect. Right. Mm -hmm. Although one of them said something really insightful when they said, no, we have lived up to our ideals. And I thought... Interesting. I wonder if that's true, because, you know, (laughs) we've all said things that we don't really believe. That doesn't mean that what we said is part of our ideals, so maybe we really have lived up to our ideals. <laughs> oh, wow. Jeez, oh, man. Did you see that? Anyway, let's get ready for round two. 
in whose political blind spot is this story? They cannot find the parents of 545 children separated on the border between the U.S. and Mexico. Well, I know this is in the rights blind spot because this is all I've been reading about this week. Correct. Such a mediocre (laughs) excitement. The right is covering this a little bit. They're just completely swamped by the coverage on the left. And, uh, and and the best coverage on the right, best is in quotes, is from The Blaze, where they just repeat uncritically the Department of Homeland Security's response, mm-hmm. which is that, in fact, this narrative has been dispelled. And the simple fact is this. After contact has been made with the parents to reunite them with their children, many parents have refused. Oh, come on. The idea being that America is so great and the parents have been deported that they're like, no, 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 we don't want our children back. Keep them. But of course, this goes against maybe that has happened in some cases, but not these cases. Right. And not for 500 plus children. Not not the 545 cases where the lawyers are saying we cannot find the parents. Trying to reunite these. Yeah. And now for round three. In whose political blind spot is this story? Biden town hall questioners included former Obama speechwriter and wife of Pennsylvania Democrat. This is obviously in the left's blind spot because the right is losing their minds over the everything's rigged. Of course, of course. And so and just for clarification on the story, uh, The Hill classified as being in the center, uh, says, you know, they went and tried to get comment from ABC. And ABC said that Stephanopoulos disclosed the mix of voters at the top of the program, saying to Biden about the audience, they're a group of some are voting for you. Some have said they're voting for President Trump. Some are still undecided. And we're going to try to take questions from as many as we can tonight. And then when Osborne, the person who was an Obama speechwriter, like not for Obama, but within the mm-hmm. White House more broadly, when he was questioned, he was shown as just a commu- – his uh, occupation was communications. Uh-huh. There was no indication that he was former administration, admi- administration speechwriter, though he was introduced as a Philadelphia Democrat. Yeah, I mean, okay. Like, yeah, that's not cool. If it was the other on the other side and they had like – Trump administration people just titled as, you know, Virginia Republican asking questions. Yeah, and I'd, I'd be upset about that. That's fair. They were also going crazy about a wife of a person who previously ran for Congress as a Democrat, hmm. as if that was also out of bounds. Hmm. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Plants. Right. Yeah, they're not, they're not plants, but it's like. There's a kernel of justification in their yeah. uh, upset. The best lead sentence from the right on this story was this. Chick-fil-A is delicious. Jesus is Lord. The sky is blue. Water is wet. And town hall questioners are covert liberal activists. <laughs> They're so over the top. Just like tone it down. People would take you seriously. <laughs> Yeah, Chick-fil-A is just fine. (laughs) No, it's evil. (laughs) So 
So having come back with hard-fought redemption, once again, winner and again champion, Amanda from Boston, Ah, thanks for playing. Thank you. That wraps it up for today. It's important to mention that all of today's commentary and analysis is ours alone and definitely not that of the staunchly unopinionated ground news. If you'd like to try their service, get a discount on their premium features, and let them know we sent you, go to ground.news best. As always, whether for traffic safety or media literacy, never forget to... Check your blind spot! You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, voting is not enough. Get out the vote and donate strategically for the final push. Next week, exactly seven days from now, America will watch the election results roll in. And chances are it will take days, possibly weeks, maybe even months until we know who won. Your actions this week can build the giant turnout we desperately need to overwhelm gerrymandering, make up for voter suppression, and deliver a decisive victory for Biden. Maybe that doesn't sound exciting to some of you, and I get that, but this is what it will take to have a chance at protecting people's rights and fighting for progressive ideas. Last time, we highlighted the Get Out the Vote campaigns Swing Left, Field Team 6, and Vote Save America. This week, we'll add Indivisible to that list at 2020.indivisible.org. Hand-wringing doesn't help, but talking to likely voters might actually make you feel better. For our full list of volunteering opportunities, voting resources, and much more, visit our Voting Is Not Enough 2020 Election Action Guide at bestoftheleft.com slash 2020action. Today, we're going to focus on how you can strategically and effectively donate in this final critical week before the election. We know these are hard times for many people, so if you can give, please, please do. Swing Left isn't just getting out the vote. They're also making it easy to donate strategically. The Swing Left Immediate Impact Fund sends 100% of your donation to the candidates in the closest races among the 12 super states. That's the most important states to help flip the White House, the Senate, and state houses key to rolling back Republican gerrymandering. Or you can donate to one of the super states, and 100% of your donation will support close races up and down the ballot just in that state. Go to swingleft.org funds to donate. If you want to help the Democrats keep control of the House, the DCCC has established what they're calling a frontline member donation fund. These are House members who won tight House races and flipped districts in the 2018 midterms and are vulnerable in 2020. Go to dccc.org frontline to see the list of candidates and scroll all the way down to click to donate. It's worth noting that this list includes Sharice Davids from Kansas, one of the first two Native American women elected to Congress, as well as the first openly gay person elected to Congress from Kansas. Lauren Underwood from Illinois, the youngest and first black woman to win in her district. Abby Finkenauer, the first woman elected to Congress from the state of Iowa and nearly tied with AOC for youngest member of the House and Johanna Hayes, the first black woman to represent Connecticut in Congress. We don't want to lose these 2018 gains in diversity and political outsiders. If you want to help flip more House seats, donate to the DCCC's Red to Blue program at redtoblue.dccc.org. That list includes Kara Eastman in Nebraska's 2nd District, who was endorsed by AOC's Courage to Change PAC and Justice Democrats in the primaries. She was within two points of winning in 2018. This could be her year. 
And don't forget about governorships, which will be critical to protecting civil rights laws and implementing public health measures to fight against COVID-19. Right now, Utah and Montana have an open seat for governor, while Missouri's Republican incumbent is in a close race. Indiana, North Dakota, New Hampshire, Utah, Vermont, and West Virginia all have Republican governors up for re-election. Head to democraticgovernors.org to donate. As we get closer to Election Day, remember that if you or someone you know encounters a problem when trying to vote, call Election Protection at 866-OUR-VOTE or visit 866-OUR-VOTE.ORG. So don't get complacent. Trump could still win this thing. Republicans could still hold on to the Senate or erode gains in the House. No one wants to wake up on November 4th wishing they had done more. So take action now. Voting is not enough, folks. It's just not. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources. And once again, this segment is available on the Voting Is Not Enough page at bestoftheleft.com slash 2020 action. So if giving left-leaning candidates the resources they need to win this thing is important to you, be sure to tell everyone you know about Voting Is Not Enough. Get out the vote and donate strategically for the final push so that others in your network can spread the word too. Do you see the breeze blowing? Can you feel the winds have changed? Do you smell the scent of roses, or does rotten air remain? Do you feel the time has come, when we rectify what's wrong, putting all where it belongs, as we stand up and be strong? Cause it's time to make a difference in this fickle world of change. Recessions have different triggers, but most of the consequences can be fully anticipated. Job loss is going to happen in recessions. There are going to be income disruptions for families, and there are going to be liquidity constraints and credit crunches. And so each of those consequences can be solved or addressed or alleviated with a suite of policies. Instead of Congress rushing to put together ad hoc processes for bailouts every time there's a recession, we can have a sort of break glass in case of emergency standing set of policies in place that Congress could just turn on to address these sort of known features of recessions. Yeah, it's, of course, an incredibly obvious and uh, good idea, which is, I suppose, why we haven't done it before. But tell us what the elements of that plan would entail. We have a proposal that we call the Standing Emergency Economic Resilience and Stabilization Program, and it's really a four-part plan. So one piece of the plan is around job loss. As you know, and as many of your listeners know, unemployment right now is incredibly high, but it didn't have to be that way. Other countries, particularly in Europe, who also experienced high rates of COVID-19 have much lower job loss than we do in the order on the order of four to five percent whereas we're approaching that 15% mark. Job loss is obviously terrible for individuals, but it's also just really costly as a society. Rehiring is costly, training is costly, extinguishing productive matches between employers and workers is unnecessary and costly. Workers get rusty when they're not working, they lose certifications. And of course, in the US, because jobs are attached to health insurance. Many people lose their health insurance too, which has been really devastating for folks in the middle of a global pandemic. So one piece of our emergency uh, package is a paycheck guarantee legislation for small businesses. So this is similar to what many other countries are offering, and it's been proposed in both the House and the Senate, but it would allow 
the government basically to step in and take over the payrolls of small businesses. A second piece of our proposal is around financial systems infrastructure. So obviously, one thing that we do every time there is a recession and we're responding is we get money out the door, both so that folks can cover their expenses, but also for fiscal stimulus. We have a proposal for what we call an emergency payments form that basically just allows businesses and individuals to have accounts and payments addresses so that we don't have these long delays getting money out the door. I know many of your listeners probably got the $1,200 checks from the CARES Act that was passed in March, and they may not have gotten those until May or June. Those types of delays are really unnecessary. And they're also really bad for the economy. Getting money out the door uh, quickly is really important. A third component of our legislation is around using automatic stabilizers, which is a sort of wonky technical term that really just means social policies that are tied to conditions in the economy. So when the economy is contracting, the social programs would expand. And when the economy is expanding, the social programs would contract. And all sorts of programs can be offered through those stabilizers, Um, cash assistance, money for state and localities, unemployment insurance, expanded benefits, and housing assistance, which we talk a lot about. And I think people don't always think about in the automatic stabilizer context. And then the final piece of the proposal is an off-the-shelf bankruptcy restructuring process for large firms. And that is really designed to prevent the kind of no-strings-attached bailouts and corporate slush funds that we've seen in this recession. And frankly, for a second time, because we also saw it uh, during the Great Recession. Well, let's start with the last one. I think one of the reasons that I like this idea so much is that people can both do and justify terrible and egregious things during an emergency. (laughs) particularly if no one has thought it through carefully and structured an approach to the particular problem that you're addressing. And both this time and in 2007-8, we, in many cases, effectively shoveled money into the pockets of rich people rather than doing things that really helped secure the economy for most people. And panic sort of obscures all of that. And I just think it's just really super unnecessary. And there there are so many simple ways to approach this that your report details that would be cheaper and more efficient and more effective. And I think most important to me, wouldn't erode the public's confidence in the government, which is what's going on now. And at the center of that, I, I think you would agree, Nick, is this idea that instead of just shoveling big piles of money towards these large corporations and banks, we actually get an equity stake in exchange. Right. So what would the mechanism in in your program be? You're making two really important points. The first point is a political one. And I do want to touch on that because while the policy pieces of this paper are really important, and we think some of them are quite innovative, some of them, as you say, are very obvious. The real innovation may be the potential to change the political dynamics. And you're absolutely right. In the fog of an economic crisis, when Americans are really suffering, small businesses on Main Street are shuttering. There's a lot of energy and need for Congress to move money out the door to help alleviate that suffering on Main Street and for American families. 
However, because there is so much political pressure and so many constituencies wanting that, it creates this sort of must pass bill, right? Like we have to get this aid out the door. Correct. And when you have a must pass piece of legislation, it is a bonanza for lobbyists and special interests. Right. And we absolutely see all sorts of policy writers for really idiosyncratic things. I read yesterday that as they're negotiating this unemployment cliff, some Republicans have proposed removing the deductions that were passed during the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act on deducting expensive meals. (laughs) So they're trying to get an increased deduction for sort of three martini lunches and Obviously, because so many members of Congress will want to vote to extend the unemployment insurance, somebody downtown on K Street sees an opening for that proposal. And even the most kind of steadfast corporate governance advocates, your Senator Elizabeth Warren's, your representatives, Katie Porter and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who really oppose those kinds of special interest handouts, are in a little bit of a bind because sure. they also want uh, to move the unemployment insurance. And so that dynamic is really poisonous. And I agree, it really undermines public confidence. And I think with a standing program that's sort of where the rules are written in advance and they're laid out and there's a little transparency around them, I'm not saying that you avoid that dynamic, but I do think that dynamic becomes much more pointed and clear and easy to oppose because you're having to add it on top of what we've already agreed upon. Yeah. For this part, for the automatic stabilizers, do you really require an on-off switch or could you just leave it on all the time so that there is no opportunity for this sort of log rolling in uh, activating the program? Oh, that's such a good point. That's a great question. So you're exactly right. Once you pass legislation tying these programs to automatic stabilizers, you're exactly right. You would not need to turn them on and off again during a recession. And I do think it's important to point out that there are sort of programs in the safety net that already function as de facto automatic stabilizers because they're on the mandatory spending side which means that if you qualify for the program, you get the program. And during an economic downturn, more people qualify for programs like nutritional assistance and unemployment insurance, right? The kind of stabilizer conversation right now around unemployment insurance is about actually sort of increasing the minimum benefits. But you're exactly right. Stabilizers would actually, you know, they're a great policy tool. It sounds really wonky, but the political argument for them is pretty powerful because They really raise the floor for negotiations. I mean, can you imagine if we weren't having to have this unemployment insurance debate and instead of dealing with unemployment in the CARES Act and then now again in right before August recess, Congress had spent the whole summer working on the infrastructure for a vaccine, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I mean, you're really clearing the decks in a way and allowing people to focus on the triggers of a recession or the sort of proximate crisis at hand. You could have written at some point, every time there's a 1 million increase in weekly jobless claims, a $600 uh, bonus payment kicks in. And that could have passed because nobody would have thought it ever would have happened. I just really think that 
some version of this is so important. And by the way, it could be such an opportunity for the country because you really are making lemonade out of lemons in some of these circumstances if you do it correctly. Because in the circumstance where you're taking preferred, basically equity and preferred shares in these companies in exchange for bailing them out, to the extent that you could make the public benefit from that, well, then you have come out in the long term ahead. And I just feel really strongly that, for instance, if you basically required companies to give the federal government preferred shares, you could distribute them in the social security accounts of all Americans, right? Everybody gets a share. And when you retire, you get to sell those shares. Imagine if these bailouts, every time there was a corporate bailout, the American people got bailed out simultaneously. They became right. shareholders. Yeah, right. The, the, the political support there would be for that. Yeah. Uh, everybody just, wins. Everybody wins, even in a difficult circumstance. We've just heard clips today, starting with The Ezra Klein Show, discussing how the pandemic has given a wider swath of people a glimpse at what it's like to live without childcare resources. Pitchfork Economics also looked at ways to reorganize childcare. The Majority Report discussed basic income for children. Deconstructed spoke with James Galbraith about taking inspiration from the New Deal to build our new economy. We heard our latest episode of Check Your Blind Spot and our activism for today. Pitchfork Economics looked at ideas to put economic emergency recovery on autopilot. So all of that was heard by everyone, but members also heard three bonus clips, including Democracy Now! speaking with Reverend William Barber about food insecurity and the sickness of the GOP looking to take away from people in a time of crisis. The Takeaway discussed homelessness amid the pandemic, and Pitchfork Economics explained once again why the government's budget is nothing like a household budget and why a time of crisis is exactly the time to spend. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes, and they are part of the transcript for today's show, so you can still find them if you make the effort. If you would like to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, you can sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or make a request for a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds be a barrier to hearing more information, so every request is granted no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Aaron from Philadelphia, where, as you may have recently heard, bad things happen. First, I want to respond to that claim by saying, okay, it's true, but only if you're Santa Claus or a player for the Dallas Cowboys. More importantly, for the purposes of this podcast, I'm responding to episode 1375. As someone who is a poll worker uh, for November 3rd, needless to say, it's a little disconcerting to hear about all of these plans that are going on by various right-wing armed groups to try and disrupt polling places. In fact, while the woman wasn't armed, the whole bad things happen in Philadelphia meme started because 
somebody showed up at a, not a polling site, but an election commissioner's office demanding to be allowed to observe what was going on there when she had no credentials whatsoever and also no legal right to just sit around in a city office and watch the people do their work, which is all that was going on in that location. So, like I said, obviously a little disconcerting to think about what might happen. Hopefully, since my uh, precinct isn't right on the edge of the city like that office was, uh, nobody's going to bother to drive all the way in and show up to give us trouble, but we are prepared in case things get a little weird. The thing I wanted to talk about, though, for all the listeners, was to make sure that you keep the line between aware and prepared and panic. Uh, don't cross over that line. Trump is a wannabe strongman, and one of the most important things for a strongman, whether classically like you know a Mussolini or a Stalin or more recently an Orban or a Putin or like Trump wishes he was, they require an air of invincibility and inevitability. And so don't give them that. Don't concede that they are invincible or inevitable. And what I mean by that is take the stories you heard about militia members wanting to cause trouble before during and after election day, make plans to do something about that, to make it known that their voices aren't legitimate, whether that's some sort of street protest, whether it's rallying your neighbors, uh, you know, whether it ends up being some sort of a strike situation or even something as extreme as what's going on in Belarus right now. But Know that we have the power still to fight back. It's when you cross that line into saying, well, it doesn't matter what I do because they're just going to steal the election. That's when you've conceded to the inevitability and the invincibility, and you don't want to get yourself or your friends in that mindset. You know, where there is life, there is hope. And hope isn't blind optimism. It's saying, look, it ain't over till it's over. And you're going to fight all the way. So listen to those activism segments, the the more than just voting segments that Amanda has been presenting, and just have a plan for before, during, and after Election Day yourself, because there are more of us than there are of them, and that matters as long as we show up in our numbers to make it matter. That's my little rallying cry for today, my call to action. Thanks for everything you do, Jay, and stay awesome. Hi from New Zealand. This is Aaron. My late grandmother was a member of the U.S. Communist Party back before FDR used socialism to save the USA from collapse. Nothing you say in your podcast about the American abuse of power would have been news to her. By the way, the U.S. Communist Party branch was mostly made of kind caring, educated, professional people. And after helping greatly to win the war, they got wrapped around the axle with Russian paranoia from a feckless media and political gangsters. The handbook for U.S. power is certainly about the use of unprofessional incompetence. 
Today we even have our Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, being hailed as a political superhero in the US for just doing the job of her office competently. When Trump put his hat in the 2016 presidential ring, from here it looked like his old friends the Clintons got him to switch to red so he could tarnish the GOP with gross incompetence. The DNC could then sweep up all the dislodged corporate money. Looks like that kind of worked except they forgot. Everything Donald touches turns to shirt. All the best. Thank you so much for having my call. My name is Alfredo. I'm calling all the way from Frankfurt, Kentucky. First, I want to thank you for your show. I think the format is really good and I've profited a lot from your show. My question was brief. So I'm becoming more and more a socialist. I'm convinced of the goodness of it and the necessity that we have of this system to combat so many of the ills that we have here in America. And by the way, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a born in America. I'm Panamanian, but I've been living in America for over six years. My question is simple. A lot of people, when they hear socialism, uh, they immediately think about the worst case scenarios like Venezuela. Uh, they think of uh, North Korea and these countries. I wanted to know if you had a show dedicated to this type of arguments. I think that they're straw men. If you have anything substantive, something that I can give to friends and family members that immediately jump to this sort of crazy arguments, I would appreciate it. I think uh, those countries are underdeveloped. I, I think they're very young democracies, if you will. I, I also don't think that it's as bad as people make it to be. And that we also have to take into consideration that they have blockades and punishment, international punishments that have crippled those nations. I'm talking about Venezuela, for example. So if you can go into that, provide a more context, historical tidbits and whatnot, I would really appreciate it. So thank you so much for taking my call and uh, see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work on the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. So just a quick response to uh, Alfredo. I don't know that I have exactly the episode that you're requesting, but I think it's a good idea and I may do one soon. To get you started, though, I would go with episode 1243, The Story of Socialism in America, that helps explain why Americans talk about socialism the way we do. Then 1248 is about Venezuela and America's addiction to fiddling in other people's business. 1293 is debating democratic socialism and how to get there. So that gives a different perspective on something that we could refer to as socialism and what people are more, you know, really clamoring for right now. There's 1323, Power to the People, the Future of Public Ownership and Local Control. So again, more talk positively about what we want. 
Frankly, I think a good strategy for talking about the concept of socialism, especially when you're talking with someone who reflexively derails the conversation to talk about Venezuela, is to talk about what you want, rather than defending, no, 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 you're misunderstanding, and don't forget that Venezuela is under sanctions from the United States because we use our imperialist power to try to crush anyone with a system that we don't agree. Like, rather than get in that slog, talk about what we do want. So again, 1323 is a good one for that. And uh, 1343, similarly, it's titled Bread and Roses, Socialism is Freedom and Firefighters. So again, reframing the ideas behind socialism, especially how we talk about it today and what people really want, and helping people understand pretty much all the good parts of America stems from some form of socialism or another. But as I said, it's a good idea to talk more specifically about the propaganda aspect of it, not just how we talk about socialism and why, but, but really exploring that Cold War propaganda. And in particular, I would love to dive deeper into this. I'll just do like a quick overview comment on it, which is that the economic system, when talking, well, when talking about socialism or capitalism, what we have done is we have fused inextricably economic systems and political systems. So in America, we believe that democracy and capitalism are fused and one cannot exist without the other almost. And then they do the same for socialism and say that the economic system of socialism is fused with an authoritarian power structure, a political structure that is authoritarian. And I hate to be the bearer of odd news, but that's just not the case. There's just no reason to think of those things as inextricably connected because you can have democratic socialism, which is economic policies that could be referred to as socialist, but which are administered democratically. The political system is democratic. The economic system is socialist or democratic socialism. You can also, obviously, we've seen examples from history, you can also, of course, have authoritarian socialism. So it's not that that can't exist and that it's a myth that that ever happens. It's not, of course. You can you can have a Chinese Communist Party that is authoritarian and their economic system, which is communist, but that doesn't mean that those two things have to go together. They do in that case, but they don't have to. And with democracy and capitalism, you can have capitalism without democracy. And again, with a little touch of irony, China is also the example for that, because they have transitioned massively from a purely communistic economic system into a largely capitalistic economic system. But during that economic shift, there has been essentially no political shift. So if you need any proof that the economic system and the political system are not inextricably linked, China's economic shift happening at the same time as there's been no shift in their politics and the structure of their power being uh, administered in an authoritarian, top-down sort of way, 
I mean, nothing should be clearer than that those things are not inextricably connected. And so anyone who tries to tell you that they are, which is basically everyone in America who's been brainwashed into thinking it, you should know right off the bat that they are completely wrong. So just as China was able to transition from a communist economy to a capitalist one without changing their politics, it is equally true that we could shift away from a purely capitalist economy without shifting away from democracy. You don't then need authoritarianism to administer socialism. You just don't. Which is why, unsurprisingly, they call it democratic socialism. That's not a misnomer to try to trick you or anything. That's that's really what people want. They want vastly different economic systems, but for those systems to be controlled democratically because authoritarian political systems are terrible. So, Alfredo, I hope those episodes I gave you help or at least get you on the right path, and maybe we'll be continuing this conversation in the coming months. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.